0: did you know you had this and it's okay we are up to precious balosa and what is it? there's a bunch of stuff going on i'm going to try to like do it in a way that's not super confusing but let's work with me okay so balosa starts off with the commandment for Aaron to kindle the menorah and it goes into the discussion of lighting the menorah and da 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 now What's very interesting, I think, because of the whole name of the parsha is also Bahaloscha, so we're going to look at that in a second. What does Bahaloscha mean? Do, do, do. What root do you see in Bahaloscha? Alot, right? To go up. What, when we say, when we light our Shabbos candles, what bracha do we make? Asher kiddushan v'tzayitz v'tzvanu, La hadlik, right? Lahadlik is a very common term for lighting a candle. but is an unusual term. It's a, it's it's not common, and as Sarlaya pointed out, it has the root in there of aliyah. There's something about it's not just lighting the candles, it's uplifting the candles. It's like sitting there and, and making sure that they actually get lit. So Rashi brings a couple of things. First of all, Rashi says that Aaron has to light each candle and stay at, I don't know if this makes sense in English, it, to, to wait at each candle until it actually catches flame and is like solidly burning on its own. Okay? The menorah, the menorah the in the base of mikdash. The, the, the menorah in the base of mikdash. We're talking about lighting the menorah in the base of mikdash. Now we know that the, the so one thing is A, that Aaron has to purposely, um, consciously light every single candle And stay there till the candle is able to burn on its own. The other thing that Rashi brings is that there was a step. There was an aliyah in front of the menorah because the menorah was very high. Even the travel menorah was like, I don't remember the dimensions, but it's like a solid six six feet high or something. And Aaron has on his forehead a gold plate that says, holy to Hashem. And he's not allowed to lift his hand up higher than that plate. So he has to be raised up so that he could light the candles this way. It has to be a straight on process. He can't go like this to light it because he's not allowed to lift his hands above his forehead because on his forehead, he has the plate that says holy Tashen." Okay, so like if you ever, not that we look, but when the, Kohen, the Kohanim bless the people, they don't lift their hands up so high. They, they, keep, them, they keep them a little bit lower. Not that we're lucky because we're not supposed to look at all the whole situation, but in case we have to notice, they don't go so high. So, ours is not allowed to, so those, those are two things that Rashi brings. The other thing that Rashi brings, and I want to look at the Rashi, this is the first Rashi. Okay, so if you're looking inside, it's chapter eight, and it's verse two, Baaloscha, and Rashi wants to know, Lamanism ha-parshat ha Why do we have the juxtaposition, which is such a nice word, by the way, of the parsha of the, of the menorah, to the parsha to the whole section of the nisim? We know that at the end of last week, we were speaking about all the, the dedication of the Nesim and all the gifts that they brought, and blah, 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 right? Lefi when Aaron saw the dedication of the of the uh, of the, all the princes, he felt very bad. He got like got his his like it literally means like his his mind was weakened. Like he he was very distressed. he was not part of the de- the inaugural ceremony with them. Lohu Velo shifto, not him, and not his tribe. And there's like a double whammy going on over here, right? So, Hashem says to him, What you're going to do is greater than what they're going to do because you light and you prepare the candles. Okay, lovely, very nice. But, um, how does that answer this question? How does that answer the question? First of all, when does Aaron start lighting the menorah? A date, what date on a calendar does Aaron start lighting the menorah? The eighth day of when? So it's not the eighth day of Nisan, right? But he, by Yom what, how do we, what happens when we set up the Mishkan? The first seven days, who was doing the service? Bush. Moshe was doing the service. Remember that we had the last week of Adar was like the, the dress rehearsals for the Mishkan. Moshe was the acting Kohen Gadol. He told Aaron, he showed the Kohanim everything that he had there. This was totally not an English sentence. He showed them what they were supposed to do. He did all the service by himself, and he really, that was the week that he brought them into the service, but he, Moshe, did all, of the, all the service on his own, okay? When does Aaron start doing it? When is day one of the, no more dress rehearsal? It's Rosh Chodesh Nisan, right? The first day of the month of Nisan, is the is the show is on it's the real curtains raised and yalla we're doing it and who does that aaron aaron is now the Cohen and he he's doing everything and he's going to be now when did the nisim start bringing their gifts when anybody remember no we had it in last week's partial but when did the nisim bring their gifts they're bringing gifts to dedicate the Mishkan, they're coming to bring gifts to dedicate them as Beach. When do they start bringing their gifts? Also under Chodesh Nisan. It's also under Chodesh Nisan. So we could say Aaron has seen the lineup of who's going first, second, third, fourth. They had this idea, the tribe of ladies not included. But really, this whole section of the menorah should have been before the him. Because, like, if you were to say chronological, so Okay, Moshe did his thing. And now Aaron is going to do so. Even you say, So first we would say, Aaron started lighting the menorah. He gets the commandment to light the menorah. And then to see him do it like, his is going to be, the, it, it's a funny kind of placement that is after after all 12 have gone. Then it says, if he's getting the commandment now, 12 days later to light the menorah. But he didn't. He was already lighting the menorah for 12 days. Right? And the other question is really, how does that answer the question? Aaron's like, everybody's doing something big and awesome and great. And Hashem's like, you're gonna light the menorah, that's gonna like be better than anybody else's. You know, the Kohen Gadol does some really other awesome stuff. The Kohen Gadol like he goes into the Kodesh Kedoshim once a year, he does the Ketores, he brings sacrifices. Like what's the big deal about, not what's the big deal, but like what's the situation with the menorah, right? Why are you highlighting this? And somehow that answers the question. He feels bad that he's not included in the dedication, and so therefore, you got the menorah. All is good. How does that answer the question, right? And here's another interesting, fun fact. Do you know that the only service in the base HaMikdash that does not have to be done by a Kohen is, actually, two: is lighting the menorah. Do you Okay, you have a practical difficulty, because if you're not a Kohen, you can't come into the... Kodesh, where the menorah is listed, not listed, where it's standing, okay? The menorah is physically in a place that you can't get to. So the Rambam discusses different ways. Do you bring the menorah out to plain Jane Jew, to light it? (coughs) Excuse me. Do you have like somebody standing there with a really long pole, so it's going to cross into the Holy of Holies? But practically speaking, if you could figure out a way to do it, you don't need to be a Kohen. You do for sure don't need to be a Kohen guddle to light the menorah. You have to be a Kohen or a Kohen to prepare the menorah, to put in the oil, to clean out the wicks, to, to set it, to prepare it for lighting. That is a Kohen job, but to actually light it, it's not specific to Kohen, meaning practically speaking, most of the time a Kohen did it because they rotated the jobs and they were there, but, but you could give it to somebody else. Yeah, okay. yes. So where was the menorah? Like- during the week, and how it was always was in the same place. place, didn't move shops or other. didn't move any. Um, okay, sorry. The other, so, where is it? And part two is how often was it Okay, so here, if we were to take the two in the Mishkan, it's just going to be the same today, so in the basic like this, but in the Mishkan, we know we have the Holy Poles. Okay, we're just going to call it the Holy Polies over here There's a curtain in the middle, and this is the Holy. Okay. The menorah is going to be over here. This is a terrible marker. Is this a courtyard? No, this is this is called the ohel. Any good markers here? Not one. Oh, oh, look, where's the marker? I, sorry. I know there's a good ground, but i this right there. Okay, this structure is called the ohel. It's part of the whole hachter. This is the whole courtyard. Sorry, this is the courtyard courtyard and this is the whole mishkan. This whole thing is the mishkan, right? This is the mishkan. see what I'm doing? The, the, the Ohel Boy, which has the Holy Holies and the Holy is in the back. I'm not proportionate. Let's close the markets up here. For the back of the courtyard. And uh, the Holy Holy is here. We have the altar in here and over here on the more Western side, we have the menorah. Pretend that is actually accurate. And, and the who could enter. And here you have the shofar, right. and here you have the golden altar. And the, For the tourists. And the kruvim are here. Ark and kruvim are here. This is the ark and Krugin are here. Lovely art. I literally failed to stick figures. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the question is, a Levite could be here, right? So the Levite is going to light the menorah. You can either bring the menorah out, they'll light it, there's a, there's a machoikis, or you could like open the curtain, have a long pole and light it, okay? But I think it's going to they're even further back. So like the, the logistics of it are, are interesting, but the theory of it is, is also, I think, very, very... Wow. It's lit every single day. Every single day, the difference of the, of the menorah is that it is lit, towards the end of the afternoon, like in the middle of the afternoon, so it's actually still light outside towards evening, and it's gonna burn all the way through the night. Okay, as opposed to let's say, our Hanukkah candles, which is gonna, which is, this is gonna be one of the conversations of why is this, you know, what's so great about it, like how they're tagged. Our Hanukkah candles, we only light when it's dark. Our Shabbos candles, we light close to, like just close to the end. But the menorah actually has to light, uh, the menorah is actually lit midday, but to the higher part of the midday. So it's not like so afternoon, but it's, it's, it's bright light outside. It's gonna like, go all the way through the, through the night. Okay. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, the only service, according to a lot of the opinions that, I, that Moshe did not do in the week before when he was doing the, all the service was the lighting of the menorah in the proper time. There's an opinion he didn't light the menorah at all. And the other opinion that he did light is that he didn't light it in the proper time. So the only act that Aaron could do that was an inaugural act is was lighting the menorah in the proper time. So that's one thing we're... And, but the question that we want to ask is like, not so what, but like a little bit so what. Aaron's doing so many things. He's the Cohen Gadol. He... He has so many things he could do. So, like, so you're not part of inauguration, like, right? Is it kind of seems like, why is this a big, thing? like, it feels a little bit petty, almost. Like, you have so much. Could you just let this one go, mm-hmm. right? But then the question that the the sages are going to ask is like, what does it mean to inaugurate something? When you do something for the first time, what does that actually mean? Not just like. Who gets their picture in the paper? But spiritually, what are you doing when you inaugurate something? You're bringing down a spiritual energy that has never been available before and that will never be available again. And what Aaron is actually going to be doing or he's looking to have the ability to do, we know that the menorah in the base of Mikdash is seven branches. It's six plus the middle. So you have seven. Seven is our perfect number of Nature, seven is nature, but when does he start lighting it? Noah, when does he start lighting it? By He, by Yom? On the eighth day, he's going to start lighting it on the miraculous number that there's going to be something of fusing the miraculous and the natural that Aaron is going to start us off on. I mean, he's not just saying, I want to be part of the parade and I want him to have a big deal made out about me. There's something spiritual that's there is a, an ability to bring it down. And he's like, We should have that space. We should have the ability to bring down something. Not just we work in the baseline position. We're not knocking it. We're not, you know, we're not belittling it at all. But to have that ability to bring down a special energy that is now available to be tapped into, that's what he was asking for. That's really what he was looking to do. And Hasidus explains that the seven branches of the menorah reflect the seven source souls, Seven spiritual sources for all souls of the Jewish people. The seven emotional traits are the our 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 neshamas all come from one of those emotional traits, and the source of our nishamah is the menorah in the Beit Hamikdash. So, Aaron isn't just aren't isn't what he's actually being given isn't just like oh you get to light the candles right? No, first of all Rashi says he's he's madlik and metiv. He lights, but he also sets on the path. And what Aaron is actually doing when he lights the candles the first time and every single time that he's going to do it and the power that he's going to give to us because the, the mitzvah that we do today that is tied directly to the temple is our Hanukkah candles. Our Hanukkah candles are directly tied to something that was done in the temple. It's a mitzvah that we do. And that's why we talk about the best way to do it is with olive oil because in the Besam Mikdash, they lit the menorah with olive oil. So we're trying to, we're not doing it the same. You're not allowed to copy the menorah, but to as close you know, to, to kind of takes the symbolism and the, the direct line is to our So list. So, um, so when Aaron lights the candles, what he's actually doing is he's making sure that every single soul that's gonna come from Chesed is prepared, is lit till it's strong enough to stand on its own. But we said he has to light each candle deliberately and slowly till they're lit every single soul source that's going to come from chesed it's going to come from vura every single you know to all the all the midos every single soul source is going to be able iron is going to light them until they are powerful enough to give light on their own now we know that the menorah in the base hamikdash was not used for light like if you're looking for a good source of, of lighting in your house there weren't very many people in the holy to get that light it was in a curtained off closed off room it wasn't for light. It wasn't for physical light. It was for spiritual items, for spiritual purpose. And when Hashem says, you get to do that, then Aaron's like, Hashem's telling him what you have is longer lasting than the one time gift that the Nassim are going to bring, which is going to also, the Nassim have this one time that they're bringing the, their, their sacrifices and they're in fact enabling everybody in their tribe through that opening of that channel, to have a personal relationship with Hashem, to be able to bring personal sacrifices and personal prayer. That's coming from the Nisim. Aaron's opening up for the entire Jewish people, for every single soul who's going to be on the branches of that menorah. His is going to be greater than theirs. So it isn't just like, oh, yeah, mine is, mine, you know, mine is greater. I but But Aaron is comforted because he's like, I get to do something. I get to bring down an incredible spiritual light. That everybody's gonna be able to tap into, and that's what the comfort is. It's not like, oh, yours is gonna last for longer because some of them. say that the menorah is gonna be lit forever because we, in the diaspora, light the Hanukkah menorahs, and it's and it's because it's tapped to the menorah in the base. I think So it's like the menorah keeps is is continuously being lit. Blah blah. blah. Yes, but he's also. It's not just because it's gonna last forever, but because he's giving us the ability to tap into a level of spirituality that's unparalleled and that's coming from and that's really what he was looking for okay oh who 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 to have to look okay the next thing we have is the dedication of the levites okay we had the situation of the Kohanim being dedicated now we're having the conversation and it's gonna be the rest of the first aliyah and the second aliyah where it's going to tell us that the levites to become inducted into the service of hashem pretty much had three things happen to them uh, we're not going to get into all of it because we have other things we need to discuss in this partial. And if we're just going to like touch on it and we're going to come back to it in a different partial. First thing that's going to happen is that every single visible hair on their body is going to be shaved. Okay. For the Levine, the, it's a one-shot deal. This only happened once. Every single hair on their body is going to be shaved. Every single visible hair on their body is going to be shaved. That's number one. Number two, uh, right? Wait, isn't, does It doesn't that happen after that exactly it's a one time it's a one time uh, law from hashem that overrides their beards getting shaved their face getting shaved all their their eyebrow all their visible here is going to be shaved it's a one time it's never to be repeated what huh right right an interesting visual um we're going would, i would i would the second thing we're going to come back to that yeah the second thing that happened to them was that the jewish people all had to put their hands on the Levium, just like uh, when we bring a sacrifice, the Levium are given from amongst the Jewish people. It's like the Jewish people are giving the Levites Tashem in their place. And we had this conversation about why the Levites are taking over the job. We're not going to get into that now. So they actually gathered all, there were like, I think, five, th- five or 6,000 Levites who were being brought into the service between the ages of 25 and 50, because they had five years of apprenticeship. And the, the Jews were also brought into that space. And they literally, when you talk about smicha, like a rabbi gets smicha, it's what what's the smicha? Is that you, the the person above him actually puts his hands on their head. And when the, when people, and it comes also from how people used to bring sacrifice, when they brought a sacrifice, they didn't go, I would bring kastro, pretend, pretend that was a beautiful chef, son, right? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't go like this and say, here, take my sheep. They, lead up. So now the Levites, now the Levites are standing there and the numbers, the numbers is about 100 Jews per Levite are going to come, they're going to lead on the Levites to put them to like, you are now in our place to serve in, in place of Hashem, in, sorry, in Hashem's house. And the third thing that happened in the strange things, which I cannot demonstrate because I'm definitely not strong enough, is that every single Levite was picked up by Aaron Hakoyim. When I say picked up, every sacrifice was, there's a something called tnu fai, You lift and wave a sacrifice in all directions, up, down, four directions, are lifted up every single one of the 6,000 Levites. Now, the, the, the I don't know, practically speaking, how this works because it was, the Farshin the, 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 the tells us that it happened one day. You a lot, you... He was 85 Wait, years, he was 85 years old. How do you do this? It was ripped. Yes, but still, but still, how much time does it take? Let's say he was very fast and it took 10 seconds to lift, do, 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 right? It takes four days. Uh, but it, I don't know, but i will tell you that the measure says 6,000 oh. would Right? There's not and whatever. I don't know. I don't know the timing, But the, the, the measure, and... not the quantum. There are, first of all, there are only four Kohanim, five Kohanim. Aaron and his four sons. There are 6,000 Levi, Levi. I don't know what timing was, but those are the three things that have to happen. The one that we're going to get back to, but not this week, is the shading of the heads. Because it's a spoiler for a story that's going to happen in a couple of parshes. We, we know of a man, and his name is Korach. Mm-hmm. Korach leads a massive rebellion against Hashem and against Moshe. Anybody know why he was called Korach? Besides, that was the name that his parents gave him. Korach comes from the word kireach, bald. He was part of those Levites who got shaved. And he said, Aaron gets to keep his majestic beard and I look like a plucked chicken. This is not nepotism at all. This is for sure God. And that this is, it's going to come out later, but this is going to be the seeds of the rebellion of saying, is this really from Hashem? Or is this like, how is this, how, how does this make sense? And we're going to get to Korach We'll talk about Korach when we come to Korach, which is not yet. But then it's from Hashem. Hashem told Moshe you'll read. Well, you read the Pesukim. Hashem told Moshe to do all of this. He wasn't making this up. No, he wasn't making it up. It really was from Hashem. I mean, but Korach was like, "It doesn't make sense. If it doesn't make sense, then it doesn't work, and therefore, probably Moshe is making it up." Not. I don't see it right, but that Moshe is wrong because it doesn't. It's not logical. These were one-time things, and it, and it affects the Livyum always after that. So it doesn't have to happen every every time. Chapter nine, the third Aliyah, we we're doing great. Um, we have a conversation of uh, the people. It is now the second year. If you notice, one of the things uh, I just want to point out is that there's a lot of jumping around time-wise in this Chomish. Okay? So here we are right now. We're, we're backing up in time. Our Chomish opened up the beginning. The second, there was a census done in the second year and the second month. This is already the second year, but the first month. It's Nisan. It's before Nisan and Hashem tells the Jewish people, to make a carbon Pesach. And we have the whole, we have the laws of carbon Pesach and which we discussed recently. We also have the laws of Pesach Shemi over here. We have the law. We don't want to miss out from a chance to do a mitzvah, right? So it's over here in chapter nine, verse six and seven and eight. And they say to Moshe, why should we lose out? And he says, Moshe says such a powerful expression. He says then in verse eight, Moshe says that, them, Imdu Veshma, stand here and I will tell you what Hashem says, which essentially is showing to us that Moshe has God on speed dial. He needs he needs information, regular prophecies. Whenever Hashem wants to give a prophecy, he finds a prophet and he gives it to Moshe has a question, he can go. Literally, and say, God, what do, what, what do we do about this? Like, what's the situation over here? So if you want to talk about it, Moses is in comparison to all the other prophets, we're already seeing proof of it over here. He says, then just stand here. I'll get the answer for you. I'll see what God has to say about the situation. And in the beginning from verse 9 and 10 and 11, we have the laws of Pesach Shani and continuing a little bit, a little bit longer. If somebody uh, has somebody was not able to bring the first carbon Pesach for whatever reason, then he has a chance to bring a second pace, a second sacrifice. And we spoke about it when it was Pesach Shady here. And I don't want to get into it in great detail. But what I do want to say, because I I, true confession time. Right. So I sat down one night this week and it was actually on uh, it was on Tuesday. I sat down and I was like, I had things like good positive things that I had this was a really good space for me to do it in and I picked up my phone
1: and an hour later
0: I picked up my phone and an hour later I had done none of the things that I wanted to do and I had I was feeling like really really I felt like such a loser like I finally had a space to do some stuff that I really wanted to do and I was like feeling really terrible and then I ended up doing so much because I was one of them things that I was supposed to do that I didn't do. And it was the laws of Pesach Shady. And I was like, okay, so that was a bad, I made bad choices, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it differently next time. Um, And really, 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 that's a Pesach Shady again, meaning we have Pesach Shady in the calendar when we had it, but it's also the energy for this net for, for this week that we are in right now, this idea of, it doesn't matter if we didn't do it as beautifully as we wanted to do it, but we have a chance to have a redo. And what? What does it take for us to get a redo? To feel bad, to feel bad that we missed out. Because when the people come to Moshe and they could have said to him, whatever, it's a good thing, but we're busy, we're doing other good things, we can't, we're doing this, we can't do it. They didn't say that it bothered them. The fact that it bothered them gives, the, gives us the space now that when we say, I would like to do that differently, I, I didn't do that as well as I could, not to say, not to go and kick ourselves. I'm such a, you know, I'm such a loser, which was my original uh, reaction to myself, was, um, but but to be able to say, wait a second, I can do this better and to empower us by feeling a little bad that we didn't do it the right way. That is what uh, gives us the catalyst to, to be able to do it better the next time around. Okay. And then the next part, review the f- next talks about um, how the camp actually, tr- yeah. Um, you want to touch on chapter verse thirteen? Chapter eight, one second chapter eight, verse thirteen. You know this is this is what this is what we talked about, that he put them there and he and Aaron lifted them all. I don't know how it worked. It says, uh, I mean, chapter nine, nine. Oh 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 oh! I'm like, okay. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, this is a, this is for the person who just doesn't hear. Oh, so chapter fifteen. No, I'll read the person who. Uh, but a man with was not on the road, and he had refrained from making the Pesach offering, that soul shall be cut off from his people, for he had not offered the Shem to offer. the time that man will bear his sins. Right. So, what is it saying? That who does Pesach Sheni? So Pesach shading has very very broad rules in the in a biblical sense, meaning in the times of the Pesach, when people were actually bringing a sacrifice. It doesn't seem um, like this guy can do No, so so what it's saying, okay, so first of all, what it's saying is, it, it's very interesting because the place of where this kicks in, because the Mepharshim the, the talk about what are the what are the qualifications? It says if somebody was far away or was impure and they didn't bring their sacrifice, uh-huh. then, then they have another chance. And here he says, and here the Chobesh is saying, but if somebody was pure and he wasn't far away and he just didn't do it, then, you know, we're not giving you another chance. But what's interesting is that the Mepharshim say that Derech means outside the doors of the Beis HaMikdash. That means for whatever reason, I'm not in a place that I can take that step forward. It's not that I have to travel. I might be down, it might be that I'm too far away. But the Mepharshim say when you talk about Derech what if you're right outside your Yerushalayim? And you're just like, We've never been in a place where it's like, I know I should, but I just can't get out of bed. So your soul's not cut off? There's a, the place of having your soul cut off. I think this is my take on the situation. But Tori uses that expression to let us know how severe a situation is. For somebody to just say, and rem- to say, I'm not interested, I don't want to do it. And remember that it has to be somebody who understands what they're doing, understands the gravity of what they're saying no to. It's not like somebody today who never learned and doesn't say, I'm not interested. That doesn't count. But in biblical, when you talk about somebody whose soul could get cut off entirely, this is a massive, massive thing. If you actually know and you actually don't have mitigating circumstances for why you're making these decisions, right? I'm going to add it in, in modern parlance, right? If you were depressed and therefore you couldn't pull it together, how could you say that that's You were physically there, but you were emotionally so far away, you could not do it. You you think God's going to cut off a soul of somebody because they were depressed and they couldn't pull it together. The question is, how many people actually, and this is what it talks about in Tanya, how many people actually with full knowledge, full everything, full awareness, full knowledge, full everything, and full emotional health, emotional and spiritual health, then choose to say no. If that's where you are, Okay. Then that's a different conversation, but, but, but one of the things that we know that Hashem does so very well, and I think that we do it for our friends, but we don't do it for ourselves is to find mitigating circumstances, mitigating circumstances, why it wasn't so bad, why you weren't such a crazy person for dating the same person in a different body, you know, like all those things, like when your friend comes to you and says, Blah, 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 blah. You never say to your friend, because we're good friends. You never say to your friends, but you said you were never going out with them again. Or you said you were never going to do that again. And here you are, you did it again. You don't say that to your friend. You're like, oh my gosh. It's okay. okay. Let's cry a little bit. Here's some chocolate. Here's some Ben and Jerry's. It's going to be okay in the morning, right? That's what you say to your friend. You find reasons why their behavior isn't as bad as they're painting it, right? That's mitigating circumstances. But for ourselves, we don't do that. For ourselves, we're like, oh Top critic. top critic, right? I'm not even, we have to treat ourselves like we treat our friends. Be nice to ourselves, right? So when the Torah says that their soul will be cut off, it's to let you know that somebody in full control and full ability, mentally, spiritually, the whole shebang. Then and they don't really want to be. Then they don't really want to be Well, but you could argue it. You could argue the point anyway. You could say that they aren't spiritually healthy, right, but or that. If- well, but like it, no, no, no! I think mean, if you you have to be everything, all systems go in the mo- in the most optimal manner. Right, but then, but one could argue that somebody just don't like. It, it's very few and far between, is what I'm gonna I'm gonna counter argue. Like it's oh. okay? okay. Then, so that was that was our that was the end of the third alia. We're up to the fourth aliyah. It talks about how they moved. It talks about how when they. When the camp was settled, there was a cloud pretty much over it. It it was over the base, over the Mishkan. When it's time to leave, when it's time for the people to travel, how do they know when it's time to go? So it came and it kind of made the cloud reshaped into like a a directional arrow thing and came over the camp of Yehuda and then Yalla. Then we started moving. Um, This Torah portion also talks about trumpets that silver trumpets that Hashem told Moshe to make for his use two trumpets and they were blown in different things for different things one of the things that they were different beats and different amounts instead of I say because you need to use more words so when I say different things and different things I realize that didn't make sense trumpets. no trumpets it's like that's what they look like long skinny over there um meaning it's not the trump it's not like a trombone it's like a thing so we know that if you if you blow one or two you'll hear a different sound you could tell that maybe not me because I'm kind of musically uh, appreciative, but not so uh, tone uh, tone clear. Yeah, so you could hear the differences um, of one or two, and then depending what it was being used for, they either did a trua or tequila, or how the, t- the the cadence that they that they blew depended on what the purpose was for. So you either used one or two, and use you use just blue blue tequila or you blew different things. So. So that is also in this part this tower portion, and but here we're specifically talking about the traveling. So when the so there basically were three things that happened. You would have uh, the cloud would reshape, then they would blow the chauffeur and Moshe would say, "Kumah ha Hashem, let's go." Now as soon as this tr- the the cloud reshaped, and doesn't talk about it here, the Levites would spring into action. They had to dismantle the Mishkan, okay. And they were going to travel. And when they traveled, there's a mechlechus, obviously, because we're Jews. Nothing is for sure. But there's two opinions on how the Jewish people traveled. Either they traveled in a box formation. So they went like this. Or Yehuda traveled. Then Ruve traveled. Then the Mishkan. Then Menasha. And then Dan. So they traveled in a straight line. Or they traveled in a box. So basically, the the cloud was the first sign. The shofar was the second sign. And Moshe saying, yalla, let's go in more official words, that was the third sign and the people would go. The reason I wanna stop here for a second, because there's something very interesting to talk about in this Parsha and text, and then then how did they know when it was time to stop? Whenever the cloud sort of mushroomed over you, they knew that was time to stop. So as long as it's straight in some kind of arrow directional thing, we're moving, 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 we're following the cloud. As soon as the cloud, it's a use expression, like it becomes like a mushroom over Yehuda, this is a good kind of mushroom, not like a Chernobyl kind of mushroom. Um, so then it was time to put it down, and then and as soon as they the, they started to settle down, the Levites would immediately build the Mishkan. And the Torah says something very interesting. Right. It says over here, um, so verse nineteen. It says that it, if the the cloud spread over the Mishkan for many days then they would, they would guard it like that. But if it was there for a few days, or even one day, they would, they would set up the Mishkan. And what does that tell us? You know, there's a very interesting thing about the Jews in the desert. They had no permanence. You know, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't, I always said that, you know, when we first moved to Israel, we did a lot of moving. And when I finally had a place that I rented for five years, I planted flowers. The Jews of the desert could never plant flowers besides that they were in a desert. But besides that, they never knew how long they were gonna be in any place. They were there as long as the cloud didn't move. As soon as the cloud moved, they moved, right? Now it turned out that they were in one place for I think 15 years or like a long time but they didn't have the permanence going in and then nobody said, yalla we're here for 15 years or 15 or 17 years, I don't remember. Some places they were there for just a week, or overnight, or for a month, right? But the first thing that they did was they said, "We are here for a reason. We're here to make this place a home for God. We need the Mishkan. It doesn't matter how long we're here for. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to have, we're going to make a Mishkan. We're going to make a home for God." And in our, you know, say, "What does it mean for us?" We go places. Our whole life is a journey, right? It, it's thank God and. It's a journey from that has many, many steps and go, we go in many different places. And the first thing that we have to understand about our journey is that no matter where we go and no matter what we do, it's not random. It's not random. We're here because Hashem has something for us to do here now in this space. If we didn't have anything to do, we wouldn't be here. You know, people say like, Oh, I just randomly got my, my plane was delayed and I got randomly stuck in the airport. No, you didn't get randomly stuck in the airport. What do you have to do in the airport while you're there? What do you have to do to make a kiddush Hashem? What do you have to do to make us, you know, make a home for Hashem in the airport? Maybe all it means, I don't know, maybe it all means to make a bracha in a place that nobody ever made a bracha before. We need to understand that when we travel in our journey of life, we need to keep our eyes open for what does Hashem want for me right now? Not when I'm on the way, I can't do anything. I'm on my journey. I'm going from here to DC as a rather example, right? I'm not, this isn't my permanent space. I'm going someplace. What am I supposed to do right here, right now? Because the Jews set up, it took 5,000 Levites to set up the Mishkan and nobody said, and, eh, let's wait a couple of days and see if we're really sticking around. No, that wasn't what happened. As soon as a cloud said, this is where we are, Yala, the first thing we're doing is we're preparing the home for God. And we'll all settle up around that, but that's the first thing we do. And I think it's such an important lesson for us to have in our hearts because we are always on a journey. And if we think it's random and it's happenstance, then we aren't proactive about what are we what are we doing here? We're just like, oh, just I'll go on Instagram for five hours. Right. No, no, what are you doing here? What are you here for this? week, month, whatever time that you're here, you're here for a reason and you have to do something. So that's what, that's something that I want to highlight from this, this section over here. Um, then we have a thing. Okay. Now the next thing that happens is in the fifth Aliyah and, um, no, sorry, they're still traveling. I, that's not true. They're traveling in the fifth Aliyah and in the sixth Aliyah, oh, so at the end of fifth, Chapter t- chapter 10, verse 29, Moshe says to his father-in-law, we're traveling, we're going to the Holy Land, come with us, come with us. And he says, no, uh, I'm going to be, I'm going back. And Moshe is trying to convince him to go with them. And essentially his father-in-law says, as much as I want to go with you, because that's going to be the better for me thing to do personally, but that's not my job right now. And my journey, because Moshe says, no, we're traveling, we're, we're journeying. My travels are not over yet. I have to go back to my hometown. I have to go back to my people and to my countrymen and to convince them about this whole God situation thing. I can't just go live my sweet life with you in in, in Israel, but I have to go. And so they split. They uh, Yisrael goes on to, Yisrael goes in his direction and um, he calls Ru'el, calls him Ru'el. He calls him Ru'el. It, Moshe uh, the ben Ruel, and then another place is at Ruel also. Uh, no, here it calls him In a different place, it calls him Ruel. It calls him Ruel in um, when Moshe meets, when Moshe first comes to Midian, he's called Ruel. Here he's called Cholvev. Yeah. So that's chapter t- 10, verse 29. And then we have a very interesting thing. You look in your Chomosh. I don't know if all the Chomosh are going to have it. But chapter 10, before verse 35, and after verse 36, are yes. upside down nuns. You see those? Yeah. Uh, like, it's, it's, rip, it's like, it's, yeah, it's a backwards, it's like a backwards bracket. Okay, not all the we are going to show it. It is upside down. No, and I think it's not upside it. down. I don't know what it looks like in your phone. Mine starts right. Mine is like a mirror image. It's like a backwards brackets over here, and the chacham tell us that these two verses, these brackets, are another book of the Torah. It's a whole nother book. Here it talks about we know this from we know this from. It's a bit like, Saron, Moshe, Puma, Sounds familiar. So that's the first thing that we're going to have here, and then the next post is in when we rest it. This is what Moshe says, okay? And there are the Chacham say that those brackets mark off a book that was never written. Because at, up until this point, the people are headed towards the land of Israel. Everything that they've been doing has been focusing them and getting them to Eretz Israel. And what would have happened if they would have just continued in that direction? They would have come. Moshe would have said, as we cross into the land of Israel... Hashem lead, you know, Kuma Ve, All your enemies are going to scatter, and your people. But that isn't what happened, and that's why that book never got got written. So there are certain places in the Medrash where it talks about that there are actually seven books of the Torah, not five, because you have gracious Shemos VaYikra. You have Bamidbar up until verse thirty-five. Then you have those two verses, and you have the end of Bamidbar. And then you have, uh, yeah. And then you have, and then you have dvaram. So there, there is, you know, would you know what would have happened had we not made the next choices that we're going that we're gonna have in the next chapters that are going on over here? How would history have looked different? Okay. Next thing that happens, chapter eleven. The people start complaining, and they say we don't want, we don't like the food that we have. The food is terrible. And we have a little bit of an interlude over here. They said, we remember the fish that we got for free in Egypt. And everybody, and Rashi's like, free fish in Egypt. You got nothing for free in Egypt. They didn't give you straw in Egypt. You think they gave you fish? And Rashi says, we didn't have obligations. We didn't have any mitzvahs to do. We want to go back to that place of having no obligation. And Moshe is is shattered. Moshe is shattered. He's like, they've been together for a year and they've been teaching Torah and they've had all these things and the people still don't get it. And Moshe's like, uh, I can't. And first of all, we have a little interlude over here where the Torah describes what the, what the, what the manna looked like. It was beautiful. It was delicious. It's a chapter 11, verse seven. And that's what to do with this. And it talks about how beautiful it came down on the, on the towel and it was and Hashem, Moshe says, to Hashem, like, am I their mother that I carry them and that I nurse them and I have to take care of them? And I have little no complaints and I can't deal with this and I can't deal with this. And 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 Hashem going to actually tell him uh, to go treat seventy people. Over here, verse twenty, uh, chapter eleven, verse sixteen. Go gather seventy people to help you lead the people. There is something that the people are not getting in Moshe's vision. Moshe wants to give them everything. And they're like, uh eh, no, we, we don't wanna do that. And there's an expression that people won't listen to what you know until they know that you care. And there was a place that the people on a certain level didn't understand that Moshe was doing this all because he loved them dearly and he cared for them dearly and he would do anything for them. And they were just like, we're done. So Hashem says to him, bring 70 people into to lead with you. And Rashi says, who are these 70 people? These are all 70 people who have mamish skin in the game. These are the people who were the overseers in Egypt. And when the Egyptians said, you need to beat your brothers or we're gonna beat you, they took the blows. And they did not, they did not beat their fellow Jews. They were like the middle level, whatever, mid-management kind of thing. And instead of passing on what they were told to do, they accepted the blows. And so the people knew that these were literally people who would, who had their back and and would, you know, do anything for them. And so when, Hash, when Hashem says to get more, uh, to get more help, he says, take the people who all the people know and who trust. These were, these were the guys that literally were with them in egypt and who protected them from the blows of the egyptians and they become uh they become the new they become prophets along with moshe and obviously moshe is giving it to them it's coming from moshe but it's going to kind of get filtered to the people in a way that they can receive that they somehow are not able to receive from moshe there's there's somehow this a very big disconnect between them and moshe they're not able to get it um now how do you get how do you get, in the meantime, Hashem said, and I'm going to give them food tea. And he gives them, Moshe's like, they're not complaining about the food. It's not about the food. They just want to complain. I don't know what you, like, this is paraphrasing Moshe, because he definitely can speak like this, right? But Hashem's like, I'm going to give, they're not going to say that I can't give them, and Moshe's like, they aren't complaining about the food. They're complaining about ideological differences. And Hashem's like, I don't care, but I'm going to give them enough food that till they're sick of it. And and the Torah tells us that these quail were brought into the camp for a month and the people were eating it and they were getting nauseous and they were dying. And it was, Hesha was like, nobody's gonna say that I couldn't do it. And that's why they didn't get it. So there's another thing going on here. Now, how do you get 70 elders? How do you pick 70 people from 12 tribes? Anybody here know math better than me? I only know because in the Rashi. 12, five, five. It's not quite exactly it doesn't divide there are two, that two don't get it so what they ended up doing was that they took six right at six per trial. six times 12 is going to be 72 so they picked 72 people and of the people then everybody picks a lottery and they and they pick uh, so everybody picks a paper 70 say stay with Moshe and two say go back home you're not getting you, you didn't get it this time okay that's a little bit of a bummer but what's interesting the two were like listen know. listen listen no 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 because yeah. art and motion, they're gonna be Eldad and Maydad they're gonna have these two people are going to go back to their they're gonna go back to the camp and what's interesting is we actually know the prophecy that Eldad and Maydad say we don't know the prophecy that the other 70s say we don't hear about the other 70 people ever again but we do hear Eldad and Maydad and Eldad and maydad somebody comes running to motion and saying Eldad and Maydan are proph- prophesizing. Pro- pro- no, Prophesy. prophet. Prophe- I don't know. I don't know. Prophesizing, whatever. They're saying prophecy in the camp. Moshe, kill them dead. And Moshe responds, I wish everybody, all of Israel could be prophets. I wish everybody could. What was, first of all, the person who came running to Moshe was Yehoshua, it was Joshua. Anybody know what the prophecy that Eldad and Medad were saying? They said that Moshe is going to die and Joshua is going to take us into the land of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, she was like, "No, no, 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 no." no. <laughs> okay, so we actually know the prophecy that Elden and that said. That's that's pretty prophecy, and we're going to touch on that in other classes because it's going to come up again and again and again. It's going to become a relevant factor. That's a prophecy. And then what the last thing that we have over here after Elden and it are our prop prophecy giving prophecy in the camp is uh, chapter twelve. Miriam and Aaron speak about Moshe. And Rashi, and everybody wants to know why, and and there's a whole conversation, what was their issue, what did they say, what were they saying, blah, 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 blah. But one of the big questions that we're going to have, because we don't have so much time, because I'm already over time, one of the big questions that I want to touch on now is why were they now opening up? Like, why do they now say, why did they start to speak now? Why is he on Moshe? Whatever the lush horror was about what he was doing wrong, why, why now? None of this is new stuff that they're coming up with. Why now? And, um, and the Harshim say because they just heard this prophecy that Moshe isn't going into the land of Israel. Whoa. No, trying to speculate why. why? Why is that not happening? Why? Why is Moshe not going now? What they didn't know is that they weren't either going into the land of Israel. Yeah. Miriam and Aaron don't either go into the land of Israel. It's going to play itself out later, but that is going to end up being the source of the, their lushanar We clearly don't have time to go into a greater detail. I want to say one thing, and we're going to finish with this thought. Miriam gets Saras. She gets leprosy. She has to be sent out of all of the camps. There's a conversation whether Aaron also becomes, be, becomes, becomes a leper and they don't, the Torah doesn't mention it because it's the kongadol. Aaron says to Moshe, you got to pray for her. There's no way to get her purified. I'm her brother. I'm not allowed to purify her. There are no other kohanim. All the kohanim alive are her relatives. We can't do this. We can't purify her. Um, and so Moshe davens the shortest prayer in all of history. And he says, uh, where is it? Uh, uh chapter 12, verse 13. Moshe cries to Hashem and he says, Kel na refan Hashem, please heal her. And Rashi, of course, says, In why is it such a short prayer? So either because Jewish people would say, His sister's suffering and he's slipping out his davening, or they're like, Oh, for his sister, he schleps out of davening, but for us, he doesn't. So in the light, of, you can't win. So there you can't win. Um, that isn't That isn't really where I wanted to finish. I want to finish that the entire people we've talked about moving and the camp moving the camp the cloud lifts up and the people are supposed to move, and the people say we are not moving without Miriam. And the camp, the entire camp of the Jewish people, waits seven days until she can be brought back into the camp. And Rashi says that that is payback for when she stood and watched her brother in the Nile. And she protected him. They all joined forces and they protected her. So for the one hour that she stood and watched her brother, millions of people stayed put. When Hashem said, Yala, we're moving, they said, no, we're not. We're staying here with Miriam until she's back in the camp. I want to give us a bracha that this is a time for, <sighs> like there's so much, there's so much bouncy in my head. Um, I want to give us a bracha that we understand that we to try to touch a little bit on a lot of things we talk about, we get to be the cohen goggle in our own lives and that we need to make sure that the people in our influence, including ourselves, are strong and steady and able to give light and warmth to everybody around them. Because if we just, you know, take a little bit of care of ourselves, but not enough care, it's going to flicker and it's not going to work. So both on a physical, on a spiritual, on an emotional level, to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and the people around us. And to understand that words have consequences to be careful about what we say and to understand that our job as the Jewish people is to really have each other's backs and to say, you know, we're going to take care of each other. Even if we don't have to, even if we don't want to, no, we should want to, we should want to look out for each other and to be there for each other. And even if we practically now have a little bit of time together physically that place of looking out for each other and having each other's back should continue. And we should never say, oh, I don't have another chance to do it. There's always a second chance. Have an awesome rest of the day. And I'll do this